Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. William Dudley is a former president of the New York Fed, of course, for years legendary at Goldman Sachs. Writing for Bloomberg Opinion, we're thrilled that Bill Dudley could brief us uh, this morning. Bill Dudley, I want to talk about policy rule inertia, the physics envy of guys like you. You do Newtonian mechanics and up we go. Interest rates start moving up and we start talking about inertia. What's the inertia look like right now to higher interest rates? Well, at the short end, the inertia, there is no, there's an inertia of keeping short-term rates uh, steady. The Fed has said that they're going to be very slow to raise interest rates. They're not going to begin to raise interest rates until they get to full employment, 2% inflation, and they're confident that inflation is going to go above 2%. We know that's going to take a while to convince them of that. Once they start, however, they're going to be late and they're going to have to catch up. And so uh, this can be a period of slow, and then it's going to be a period of fast. And I think the thing that people uh, don't really fully appreciate is when they actually have to catch up the level of short-term rates is going to climb much higher than what's currently priced into financial markets. What you just heard there, folks, is a synthesis of history with economics that Bill Dudley was legendary for with McKelvey at Goldman Sachs. Bill Dudley, I'm going to cut to the chase. In your wonderful essay, you talk about that process of moving from the reality ex post, we're behind and forward. You talk about talking, and then the Fed will act and finally, they will do higher rates. Will they do it in a measured way, or do we literally go back to Arthur Burns where they're going to be talking about eighth point or higher moves? I think they're going to have to move relatively quickly because liftoff in terms of short-term rates isn't going to happen until the economy is already at full employment. So there's going to be a big gap between where they are starting and where they need to be to keep the economy from overheating. So it seems to me that at least a quarter point of meeting seems like the most likely uh, uh, template. Think about what happened in 2004 to 2006. The Fed raised a quarter point of meeting for, uh, I think it was 17 meetings in a row, taking the federal funds rate from 1% to 5.25%. Probably not going to go quite that high this time, but we're going to go quite a bit higher, I think, than the 2% that's currently priced into financial markets. So, Bill, how would you characterize this? Is this a race back to neutral once you do start or a race through neutral? Well, you have to go beyond neutral because you're starting because you're already at full employment and inflation's likely to go above your 2% inflation objective. How so you actually a, have to go to tight. How much of a stabling force do you think the market would be in that environment? Just having a look back at late 2018 as a case study to think about. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how the market reacts. That's the one thing that could slow the Fed down. If the market reacts really poorly, then the Fed will sort of pull back a little bit. Well, look what happened though between 2004 and 2006. The Fed tightened every meeting for over two years. And uh, guess what happened? The, the stock market was fine and the bond market was fine. So you're absolutely right. How the markets react will affect the, the, the pace of tightening uh, when the Fed starts. Are you advocating for a change of policy then, Bill, or just highlighting where you think the risks lie? I think I'm just highlighting where the risks lie. I mean, there are, there are benefits of what the Fed's doing. It's going to keep inflation expectations uh, better anchored. It's going to get those uh, 8 million people that are still out of work uh, you know, post-COVID back to work more quickly. But there are, there are costs on the other side. 
And people in financial markets just need to be cognizant of that of those, some of those downside risks. What do you think those costs are in the near term? Druckermiller's out in the Wall Street Journal. Stanley Druckermiller, famed investor, of course, a legendary hedge fund manager, saying the following. The long-term risk from asset bubbles and fiscal dominance dwarf the short-term risk of putting the brakes on a booming economy in 22. What do you make of that aspect of it, Bill? Well, I think the Fed is, does recognize that financial markets are frothy, but they're looking through that because they, they especially for the equity market, they say the, the equity market, if the equity market were to go down at some future point in time, they don't see it as a big risk to financial stability because people, investors in the equity market typically don't do so on a highly leveraged basis. You remember what happened in the great financial crisis, it was leverage that killed us. Uh, so this, you know, the Fed's view is if we tighten and the stock market goes down at some subsequent period of time, that will tighten financial conditions, and we may then not have to tighten monetary policy quite as much. But they, you know, they agree that markets are frothy, but they're looking through that. They're determined to keep rates low until they actually get a lot more people back to work. Bill Dudley, I want to digress. We just talked to Jared Bernstein of the White House about this. The arch-conservative fear that we're not going to be able to grow our way or that growth won't participate in our debt and our deficit solutions. And this goes back to out on, at Berkeley where you were, Chip Jones and others, and Solo at MIT, et cetera. The idea that just this fear that the growth won't be there. Frame your optimism that growth, economic growth of this nation will assist in helping us with this pandemic debt and deficit. Well, I think it will help because we have excess capacity in the labor market. Uh, and I think, you know, if you look at the productivity numbers, I mean, it's hard to read them through the pandemic, but they actually seem to be better than what people expected. End of the day, growth is about resources and productivity. Uh, resources, not so much uh, in the sense that the population growth in the U.S. is pretty uh, modest. So labor force growth is only about a half a percent a year. But productivity growth, that's the key. And if productivity growth ticks up, then you'll have stronger growth. Bill, just finally, final question. We've got to get your take on that payroll report from Friday. How would you be processing that if you're on the Fed right now? I think you'd say, well, that was surprisingly weak. But, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of experience coming out of pandemics. And, you know, it's very possible that it's weak because people don't want to go back to work quite yet uh, because they don't have people to take, you know, they don't have people to take care of their children because schools are still out of session. Um, so I think it's going to just take a while to understand what's really happening post uh, uh, the pandemic. I, I don't think they're going to put a lot of weight on one month's uh, weakness in terms of payrolls. Bill, a timely piece. William Dudley there, the former Federal Reserve Bank of New York president. Thank you, Bill. Look forward to catching up soon. It is a wonderful time to move on from the jobs report and catch up with Jared Bernstein, member of the White House Council on Economic Advisors. Uh, Dr. Bernstein has been definitive on social economics with his work at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities in EPI. Uh, before that, an advisor to Vice President Biden, now holding court at the White House. Jared, thank you so much for joining us today. Jared, I want to go back to the arch conservative fear. It has been there from the time of David Ricardo and John Stewart. Mill, we will not grow our way out of our challenges. Everyone in the middle, everyone liberal, including Joe Stiglitz, a laureate, has battled this for years, including Solo at MIT, 1957. Describe right now this fear that we can't grow our way out of our challenges. 
Well, that's certainly not a fear I share. And in fact, uh, I think the administration's policies thus far are very much targeted at not just growing our way out of this, because that's uh, always going to be just a part of the solution, but making sure that that growth is, is equitable, that it's reaching people it hasn't reached before. One of the touchstones of President Biden's economic policy will always be GDP growth, stock market growth, even lower unemployment by itself is not enough. It has to reach the middle class, it has to reach lower income people, and they need the bargaining clout so they can claim their fair share of the growth, which by the way was 6.4% in the first quarter, and the, and the fingerprints of the rescue plan are all over that. Getting to the other side of the crisis uh, begats the Building Back Better agenda, which is a much longer term mm -hmm. set of investments. Jared, what does the Biden morning in America look like? You know, I think the way to think of that is uh, kind of shifting from the American Rescue Plan uh, to the Jobs and Family Plan. The Rescue Plan was always intended to do precisely what it's doing, get us to the other side of the crisis as quickly as possible by getting shots in arms, checks in pockets, and making sure families and businesses and childcare providers are intact on the other side of the crisis. But simply getting back to where we were is wholly insufficient for this administration. There needs to be a deep 10-year set of investments embedded in the Jobs and Family Plan to make sure uh, that what I described in my first answer to you occurs, which is that we pull along folks who've historically left behind by deep investments in education and opportunity in neighborhoods that have been left behind, in clean energy, in manufacturing, in standing up a care sector for child care and elder care. Those are all keystones of the jobs and family plans. Montana, South Carolina, Arkansas, and now North Dakota. Jared, you'll be familiar with this story. They're pushing back against the additional UI, unemployment insurance. Have you spoken to the governors of those states? I have not personally spoken to the governors, but That's there are- the president. Uh, there are people within the administration, I don't know, uh, I have a readout of uh, uh, precisely who, uh, but I do know that, yes, the president talks to, talks to governors all the time. Do you think that's the wrong decision? Yeah, I do think it's the wrong decision. I think the right decision is what the president talked about yesterday, which is a, a twofold, to make sure we take down any barriers that stand between people and getting back to work with childcare being the most prominent, to make sure that the rules of the uh, UI system are followed if people are offered a, a suitable job, uh, the rules uh, say they need to take it. And suitable, by the way, uh, means a job that uh, is, uh, is uh, enables them to go back to work safely and, and and, and recognizes that people have uh, childcare obligations that they can't always meet. So helping to take down those barriers, getting folks back to work, and recognizing that the UI system is classic insurance for people who don't have income from, for work, and it's been a huge boon uh, to uh, unemployed Americans throughout this period. If it's the wrong decision, let's stress test that. What will the consequences be this month and next month when these policies are introduced? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think they're twofold. One is that you'll see people uh, really experience a level of economic hardship that wouldn't have occurred if they'd uh, maintained their enhanced benefits. Uh, and the other is that you're not going to see much difference between um, the uh, uh, labor market outcomes uh, in these areas versus others. So if we dig into the data thus far, 
I should say thus far, because these things change month to month, uh, we don't see a negative correlation between places where unemployment insurance replacement rates, meaning the extent to which it's replacing the wage, we don't see a negative correlation between replacement rates and labor market outcomes. So that would suggest that UI uh, right. is, is not the problem. And we know that people are facing barriers to childcare, to school. We know there's concern about the virus out there. If you actually look at the vaccination rates among working age people, there are uh, obviously a lot lower than the broader uh, adult population. Dr. Bernstein, you are eminently qualified to speak to those on the right and the left with your PhD in social welfare from Columbia. Folks, that is a history and a heritage that speaks of a long century. Dr. Bernstein, frame right now on child care the debate of a federal solution versus states' rights to decide what their child care would be. Where does that stand now and where does President Biden want to go. Probably the best way to answer that question is to look at every other advanced economy uh, and recognize that they have stood up an accessible and affordable childcare sector. And in, in, in the vast majority of those economies, the labor force participation rate among caretakers, particularly women, is many percentage points higher than ours. This is not a, you know, a, a classical sort of federal state right thing. This is a classical missing markets problem. Even the most uh, mainstream economics uh, recognizes that when a market is missing, there's a role for the federal government to come in and fix that externality. And here, the negative externality is a barrier to work for people who want to get into the labor market. So this is just a very simple solution to a market failure. I look, Jared, at the solution to a market failure and I look at the politics. You don't have to worry about 2022. Your boss does as well. How is the White House adapting economically to the reality of an election coming ever closer in 2022? Yeah, that's an easy one. If you uh, just watch the uh, where the president and the vice president are going and listen to what they're saying, they're taking their message to the American people. And, and if you look at the American people's okay. response. Okay, I don't mean to interrupt, Jerry, but you nailed it. How do they sell this to Republicans who support what you're talking about, yet the leadership that they have is dead set against it? How does that metric, that dialectic work? Well, I think that, you know, you don't have to sell things to people if they're things that people want and need. You just have to tell them about it. So I think it's it's less sell and more tell. Explain to constituents why what you're trying to do. And what we found from the polling is that telling uh, does not require selling when it's child care, when it's safely reopening schools, when it's uh, beating the vaccine, when it's providing people the resources they need to get to the other side of this crisis, and when it's making historic investments in the jobs and families plans in their lives and their opportunities. Now, you know, what goes on in partisan circles in, in D.C., we have to show that out for what it is. Uh, but uh, the president yeah. and vice president are keeping their heads down, meeting the needs of the American people on all sides of the aisle. Well, the president will be meeting with the big four in the White House tomorrow. <clears throat> and, Jared, we talked about child care. Are you determined to make child care and policies addressing child care issues a part of a broader infrastructure package? 
unquestionably so. And in fact, if you look at the jobs plan and the families plan, you see that right at the heart of those plans. And I should be very clear about this. As I said before, <clears throat> I think sometimes this childcare story takes on a, a life of its own in the way that Tom was referring to otherwise. For us, it's providing an accessible and affordable path to get into the job market for caretakers who want to do so. Yeah. Some will want to, others will not want to. But if you want to and you need to get back to work, it is not hard to find caretakers today who say, I can't get back to the job market because I can't find accessible, affordable care. It is a missing market and we have to stand that market up and that's what our plans do. I'm not here to advocate for anyone's policies. You clearly are, Jared, and that's understandable in your position, sir. But when it comes to tomorrow, is that a red line for this administration? Childcare as part of a broader infrastructure package. Is that a red line? Well, you know, I'm not in a position of setting legislative red lines. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm on the economics team and I'm talking about the economic rationale. Has the president communicated that to you? At, hold on. It is at the core of uh, everything that the president has talked about uh, from the campaign, by the way, uh, until uh, through the American Jobs and Families Plan. Trying to gauge where the priorities are, Jared. Understand that you can't negotiate <clears throat> on behalf of the president, but when you sit around with the president, oh, from your understanding, is that still a core part of communications and negotiations with Republicans? Very much so. And, and I think if you look again, I think one of the I, I don't always like to cite the polls because I think you can pick and choose what you want. But on this issue, you can't find a poll that doesn't show a majority of people saying this is really important to us uh, to be able to access an affordable child. If you actually look at the amount of income that a middle or a low income family has to pay for childcare, you're going to start to get into 10, 15, 20, 30 percent of their income in some cases. And that yep. is simply unsustainable for uh, working families. And that's why the president is targeting this issue. Jared, and we appreciate your time to communicate the goals of this administration and look forward to catching up soon. Jared Bernstein there from the White House Council of Economic Advisors. We get smarter now when we win with Francisco Blanche of Bank of America Securities, head of global commodities and derivatives research. Francisco, it's been way, way uh, too long. I want you to call her now. We have all these legacy issues we're dealing with, our collective memory of commodities, our collective memories of super cycles. And you say, wait a minute, it's a split super cycle upon us. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, Tom, thank you for having me. I think I think the uh, there's certain there's a sector of metals and materials which is clearly in a in a super cyclical uh, upswing, and we are seeing record prices, and we'll continue to see record prices for a lot of the uh, raw materials there. But uh, when it comes to energy, uh, we are we are not, and and in fact, I, I doubt we're going to see record prices in this cycle. I think we're just seeing cyclical upside swings uh, across the board. Although, as you pointed out, we're down today on oil. Uh, but really, the story is that uh, in, in when it comes to, to materials um, like, like timber, we are now at a point where supply is extremely low, inventories are extremely low, um, and, and demand is roaring. So prices are extraordinarily volatile. Uh, copper <clears> is heading in that direction, uh, with inventories declining quickly and also moving into demand rationing, uh, while as oil... Um, primarily is still um, still very well supplied. OPEC is holding back capacity, so we are still uh, trying to figure out what to do with all those spare barrels. Can you put some numbers on this for us then, Francisco, this split super cycle? Let's deal with the metal side of it. Copper right now is at 10.5 on 11K watch now, seemingly. What are you looking for through the next six months, 12 months? 
So for copper, we're looking at uh, basically uh, $13,000 per, uh, <clears throat> uh, per ton. And we think we could go as high as $20,000 per ton if the supply of scrap metal, scrap copper, doesn't make whoa, it whoa, to whoa, the market. Whoa, 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 whoa. You just said you're modeling a double off of LME copper? We No, we, we are, our, our, our official target is 13000 okay? Um, but we see a case over the next couple of years, if we do not get enough scrap metal, um, coming out, coming into the copper market, because remember, a large chunk uh, of the copper market of our quarter of it is, is scrap, right? So if we cannot scrap enough copper back into recycle it back into the market, I'm talking about the the copper that we get from past uses, not the copper that we are mining, the copper ores. Uh, those are are very tight, so we need to keep pushing prices higher also to create more supply, and that's the that's the crazy dynamic that's going on in copper right now. Um, so so. Um, Remember, copper is critical to all the applications that we have um, uh, lining up for the decarbonization of transportation, the decarbonization of industry, and the uh, decarbonization of the electricity sector. So all of those require a lot of copper. Francisco, we've got to jump in because we've got to go through these numbers a little bit more. We've got 13K as your base case. We've got 20K as this big bull case. Can you help us understand how big a force recycling of copper actually is in the copper market? And whether you expect that to actually materialize, right? So, so it's, so it's about a quarter. I mean, I, it, it's it's hard to tell at this point. Remember, um, there's a lot of uh, different uh, uses that go into recycling here, and um, it's it's possible that it happens. I I, uh, <clears throat> I do think that um, copper is probably the most constructive commodity out there from a, from a metals uh, perspective. But uh, but there are others, right? I mean, remember we are at the stage where as I said before, we just printed way too much money. Um, so, and, and we never quite had a recession when it came when it comes to goods and when it comes to the demand for stuff yeah. and when it comes to demand for industry. Uh, we barely had an IP recession last year. <clears throat> so, so all of this is really booming uh, from from a right. metal, metals perspective. And and copper ores are actually degrading quite a bit. So so if you look at the the supply of ores is, is declining across across Chile and Peru. We have. Elections as well in Peru coming up, right? Where where there is uh, potential fears of, of uh, sector nationalization, and this is also the kind of behavior that you start to get when prices get out of control, and and governments suddenly see a lot of money in this commodity right. market, the small commodity markets. Francisco, our collective memory quickly here is that we had a China boom up to two thousand eight. Do we right. have a China boom again, or is demand coming from a different theme? Well. Um, the, the interesting thing in this cycle is the demand is coming really from, from everywhere. I mean, for sure, we're seeing strong demand from China, but also we are seeing a robust, a very robust consumer activity in the U.S. Uh, you know, you, you talk often to Michelle Meyer, our, our uh, head U.S. economist, and, you know, she can tell you how strong demand has been here. And part of it is just we've, we've given people a lot of money uh, to play with uh, while they were sitting at home. Um, and, and also, um, also uh, European demands actually picked up quite a bit. And... And, and while this is going on, uh, by the way, Tom, I mean, I'm sure you've noticed European carbon prices have mm. reached uh, 50 euros a ton or 60 euros a ton, which which effectively uh, means that there's going to be even more demand for this copper and, and for some of these metals that are going to help us decarbonize um, because it's so expensive now to to, to burn carbon fuels in uh, in um, the European Union. So, so there's a lot of things going on simultaneously, really, uh, supporting the complex. We've got a minute left, and I want to use that by talking to you. Just one more question, Francisco. This big call on copper, is this a cyclical call, 
or a structural secular call, this shift away from the fossil fuels and towards batteries, et cetera? What is it predominantly? It's, it's, predominantly, um, it's predominantly the latter. It's, it's a secular call. Uh, it should play out over a number of years. Uh, we think uh, at, at the end of the day, um, the, the initial impulse uh, came from monetary and fiscal. Uh, the secondary impulse came from, from this kind of China taking center stage in terms of growth last year. Uh, and now we're getting the infra US infrastructure and uh, decarization impulse. And that's going to take about 10 years plus to complete. So, so it's a secular story, uh, which will continue. It may even slow down decarbonization efforts. Uh, um, Interesting. You know, that's a risk, actually, that we end up slowing down decarbonization efforts because we just don't have the materials lined up for it. Francisco, we've got to run. Please talk to the team. We'll get our team to talk to your team. We'll sort something out so we can do this again. Tom, that's a massive Thank call. You. Francisco Blanche there of Bank of America. Well, this is a precursor, folks, for an important uh, conversation. Uh, Mr. Crescia, most interesting at IBM for a good amount of time, I think 30 uh, years, he was the one that generated uh, the, the, the acquisition Red Hat. He is, of course, from his India in the Indian Institute of Technology with academic work at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign uh, as well. Truly one of our noted computer uh, education uh, combines. We do this with the Dow, negative 338. Here is our Caroline Hyde. I'm Caroline Hyde from Bloomberg's London headquarters. For our radio listeners and for our television viewers worldwide, IBM Chairman, CEO Arvind Krishna joins us now. Arvind, a joy to have you with us. And the reason you're joining us is because the slate of products you're unfolding at your annual Think Conference. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm feeling like AI is really the focus here. You've got, of course, Watson Orchestrate with AI automating tasks for sales, HR. You've got AI helping people access their customer data. You've got Project CodeNet to speed up business application of AI. For our audience where AI, hybrid cloud, still buzzwords. How does it change their day-to-day? -day? Well, Caroline, great question, and thank you for having me here. So if you think about AI, I'll begin with a, with a catchphrase. The same way as electricity helped electrification at the turn of the last century, I believe that AI is going to infuse every enterprise and every process in this century. So now that said, let's talk about making it real. AI is the only tool we know that can really help unlock insight from all the data we collect. So when we think about improving the service for our own customers, when we think about improving operations inside the enterprise, when we think about maybe COVID-19 vaccinations happening at a rate and pace we've never seen, AI is what helps make all of that happen. So you take CodeNet, a thing I'm really excited about, open source, 500 million lines of code all collected, so that we can train AI to help write code itself or programming. Imagine how much productivity that will unlock. Or you think about our auto SQL technology to help gather data from wherever it may reside across public clouds. These are all examples of how AI really comes to life, but really helps unlock and delight end users. How does it unlock sales revenue for you? How will it speed up your own growth in revenue because you've just been bringing to your own stakeholders, well, the fastest revenue growth since 2018. Is that sustained? Um, it, it, so it will get sustained. I'll come to that in a moment, Caroline. The reason that we return to revenue growth is really a whole lot of work we have done over the last 12 months. 
We have talked about focusing our business only on hybrid cloud and AI. We have announced the spin of Kindrel, our managed infrastructure services business. We have increased our organic investment on both R&D and uh, sales. We've also increased our spending on acquisitions, 11 over yeah. the last uh, 12 months. And we are beginning to invest in our ecosystem. All that gave us a benefit in the first quarter, and we'll see more and more benefit as we go along and into next year. But if I think about AI, let's unlock a little bit. There is a salesperson. They sit there and they're yeah. trying to see what is happening to their, uh, to their client in Salesforce. Maybe an AI can look at that and say, hey, this opportunity is progressing. What should I add into that opportunity to delight the client even more? Who else should yeah. I work with inside the enterprise in order to go back? That's where AI really helps augment human intelligence. And I use the word augment, Arvin. doesn't replace, but takes away the mundane tasks. Are you exactly where you need to be to unlock this sort of productivity that you speak of? Do you need more acquisitions to be made? You just said you've been spending. I think that to unlock what I'm talking about, we have what we need. Now it's a question of making sure we have all the expertise and can get it in front of all the clients. Um, you know, I think today, um, Karen Lynch, the CEO of CVS, will be speaking with me. She'll talk about how AI is being used to really help the COVID-19 vaccinations. I think they have done like 17 million, 10 million, something like that vaccinations. And AI was really a big part of how they could get to that scale so quickly. And so I believe that we yeah. have the right pieces to go do these things. More moonshots, perhaps later, but automating operations and worrying about intelligent client experience, we can do now. When I'm thinking about my health data, as CVS is using there, when I'm thinking about the, work, the U.S. reeling from a cyber attack on its own key infrastructure, just yesterday we learned of this, of course, and over the weekend, Arvind, how, as a man who's focused on security within all of this, Important is cybersecurity. How much of a concern is it to you for your customers? Look, Caroline, I think you and I have spoken. I believe that cyber cybersecurity is the issue of the decade. And when you say why, it's not that hard. If value goes into the cyber infrastructure, criminals, thieves, nation actors are going to come after the cyber infrastructure. So that said then, then what do you do about it? One, I think I take a lot of uh, comfort in the fact I think financial institutions, uh, most healthcare institutions do take it quite seriously. However, they're all mm -hmm. doing it on their own, and each of them has their own way of doing it. I believe we should have a government program similar to putting a man on the moon at that scale to get a public-private partnership going to really take care of the cyber infrastructure. Otherwise, mm -hmm. the physical infrastructure, like we saw in the Colonial Pipeline, may be a victim or what is happening to the cyber infrastructure that controls it. Yeah. And so that's where I really believe we should go as a country. Arvin, we have but 45 seconds left. The business environment for you, for our radio and TV audiences, supply chain, how much of an issue for you as you make chips? Look, I think that there is a whole supply chain vulnerability. When we think of semiconductors, there is a clear shortage. That's why we invest in things like two nanometers. But government needs to lean in also with the CHIPS Act, and the National Semiconductor Technology Center. That said, I see spending increasing going forward. So there is going to be pockets around the world, ups and downs, but overall there's optimism in the business environment. Arvind Krishna, always a joy to have you with us. Had so many more questions for you, but for our TV and radio audiences, IBM chairman and CEO.
We talk to a lot of people in strategy and economics and, of course, in politics. It is rare we talk to someone in true wealth management, managing money and doing so in a time where portfolio construction is how much Apple do you own, how much Amazon you own. Sarah Hunt is scarred from years of dealing with clients at Alpine Woods Capital over portfolio construction. Sarah, what are you doing right now? I mean, if you didn't own enough Apple and Amazon and the rest of them last year, how are you recalibrating in your portfolio right now? Well, it's an interesting question because obviously you've seen a big move in some of these tech stocks and not a positive one in recent days. I think we were already at the beginning of the year in in January and February thinking that things looked a little bit stretched and we're starting to look for value, but value in unusual ways. So, you know, one of the stocks that we looked at is a company called Akamai, and they were one of the early people using the internet and figuring out how to fix bottlenecks. Well, they've gotten into security. And as you mentioned earlier, security is a big market right now, and people are very concerned about the pipeline issue just exacerbates that. So Mm -hmm. they had a big part of the business that was not growing and a small part that's been growing very rapidly. That's the kind of place where we're looking for a sweet spot where we look look like there was some opportunity. And Sarah, what's so important here, and I say this with great respect for the late David Swenson, who all of us mourn, is the idea of finding sector diversification through sector selection or individual stock selection, which is it right now? It's a combination of both, really, because you've seen some very big movements under the under the indexes where you've seen some big rotation into value and into sectors like the cyclical sector and out of some of the technology sectors. Healthcare has been a little bit of both. You've seen yeah, some things yeah, that are very yeah. positive and some things that are not. Biotech has had a very So what do you do with healthcare? Well, I think that you continue to invest in it. I mean, this is clearly a space where you're going to see growth and you're going to see continued growth as the population ages, not just in the U.S., but globally. But you also have to figure out how much was the pandemic a problem and how much are we going back to some sort of normal in our own healthcare system and other healthcare systems, because the healthcare system has been skewed by this global pandemic. And you see that in the numbers. So you have to assume that at some point the numbers start to change and some of the more traditional operations like hip replacements and knee replacements and all that start to come back a little bit stronger. But right now you're still in a little bit of limbo because you don't have what I would call some sort of normalized procedurals. Let's get to the numbers right now. NASDAQ 100 down by 1.9%, just off session lows and off by 250 points. Is this price action in search of a story, Sarah, or do you like this explanation, the narrative that's gripped the market this morning, that a lot of this is just the reflationary thing bleeding into big tech growth and it's not good for it? Well, that's an interesting question because earlier you mentioned that Microsoft isn't really an inflation hedge, and traditionally speaking, it's not. But do we really think that Microsoft is going to have trouble raising its prices? Like, you know, the the issue about pricing is something where on the technology side, a lot of those people do have pricing power. So the question is, does is that really the issue, or is this really rotation out of some names that had moved very quickly and very fast? Take a look at Nucor. That stock was a bottle rocket the other day, and it's gone from 50 to 100 in a very short period of time. I think that's part of the supply chain shortages you're seeing as people start to look at that. But then they tend to extrapolate pricing for periods of time that may be too long. So there is some movement into the cyclicals. But is that movement going a little too far too fast is another question, just like it was in tech a little too far. Too Let's fast. build on that then, Sarah. The relationship you think should exist between <clears throat> yields, rates, real yields and a broader market, growth equity specifically. I think it's a very difficult thing to say that we are going to see much, much higher interest rates, even if the Fed does have to raise. 
if you think about global governments, everybody's borrowed so much money that I find it difficult to believe that rates can go back to what we used to think of in traditional, yeah. you know, sort of five, six percent on a 10 year. I think that's very difficult because it's very expensive for governments now if I, rates are that high. I want to dovetail two of these arguments, John. I think this is actually a brilliant conversation about portfolio construction. And Sarah Hunt, what it comes down to is David Constant and Goldman mentioned the duration framing of these big tech stocks versus a Jack Welch-like pricing power. And you're saying the market's wrong. These people do have pricing power. To me, John, that's the huge debate of the end of the summer. So BTIG like consumer staples. Morgan Stanley, I think, <clears throat> likes consumer staples. Sarah, I keep hearing firms, banks, houses that like consumer staples because they like the pricing power aspect of it. Do you? I think that given where the multiples are on consumer staples, I'm not sure that they have as much pricing power as you have in some other areas. Oh, so is... I see the argument, but I also think that in the end, you've got a lot of choices. Consumers do make choices. They will trade down in consumer staples in a way when budgets are tight that they won't. You can't trade down from Microsoft to a different security system or a different. I mean, I just don't I don't see that kind of trade off <clears throat> happening in some of the areas that are traditionally linked to lower interest this rates is... are better for them. This is like, John, such a flashback when Toto's Africa peaked in 1980 at number 19 on the Billboard chart. I, I mean, Sarah's, I mean, I'm going to get misty eyed here. That was beautiful. Sarah thank Hunt, you. thank you. Alpine Woods Sarah, that was manager. great. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.